0: Welcome to the Two Hip Podcast. Today's guest is a friend and frequent collaborator. Um, I've asked myself uh, how long it would take before he was a guest on my podcast. Not long at all. Uh, <laughs> never, never works out that way. Um, you know, it would take an entire podcast, I think, just to list all of his accomplishments. Some fun highlights, though, just for for the hell of it. Um, he did this really cool. Uh, video of the song albuquerque uh by weird al um, basically mashed up with like breaking bag video clips we can talk about that i'm sure as we go on um, and it's got i think between the two different pages where it was posted it's got like around a million views on youtube and weird al himself commented on the video which i think is cool he did the spider gwen trailer for vulture uh, slash new york magazine a few years back um, and i think that had like one and a half million and he's produced plays in new york and around the whole country Uh, He actually went to architecture school, which you wouldn't know from all the stuff I just said. Um, And the thing I think he spends the most time doing uh, is actually like virtual reality, augmented reality. Just started a cool business that I want to kind of dive into and creating like immersive uh, experiences, um, typically related to architectural spaces. But I imagine and I've actually seen evidence in some of his recent work that it's outside of that as well. Um, A really interesting person. And um, I give you Alex Coulomb. Applause machine, insert loud applause music now. (laughs) How are you, Alex?
1: Well, thank you so much for having me on your show, Danton.
0: It's it's wonderful uh, to have you here. I'm I'm excited. You were, despite the industry you work in, when I thought about authenticity, you were the first person that topped my head for two reasons, Um, and I'll get into them in just a minute. (laughs) But first, I'm going to let you explain yourself. Explain yourself. The hostile segment where you explain you like you're on trial.
1: Sure, yeah. So uh, I'm the creative director of Agile Lens Immersive Design, which is a relatively new xr consultancy based out of new york city so we focus on creating um really innovative virtual reality experiences for a variety of inter- industries started out primarily for um actually just theater architecture then branched out a little bit more to architecture and now we're doing live theater event kind of things as well so it's it's growing a lot of octopus legs
0: wonderful yeah that's um it's a really fantastic uh, business model i think it's and it, it sounds like it came about pretty naturally. You just started doing this more and more often in your job, right? Um, which was uh, at FDA, um, and you Not started the Food and
1: Drug Administration, <laughs> just to clarify. Yes,
0: sorry. Um, and uh, and you started doing this theater design work, and they kept wanting to really see what it was like to certain views. And a lot of times, you know, they want to see all the views, all the obstructed views and, and anything that was kind of um, unexpected. And these are these are famous architects in some cases, some cases not, obviously. Um, but the point is, you have a whole range of people um, with different levels of uh, experience in architecture. Um, and you wanted to give them sort of the quick and dirty version of this is what it's going to look like. And let's let's get in the space, but understand it, but also not be so polished that they're stuck to like, oh, that material needs to be this certain thing on the wall. Um yeah, it's really, really fascinating, and I think uh, it transitioned very smoothly, it sounds like, and you just, it started building up more of these experiences to the point where you and, um, is it the owner of uh, FDA? What uh, I'm sorry. Josh Dax, yeah. Yes, so you you worked on it, uh, this business together and then built that. What When did you actually start the business? When was it officially launched?
1: Uh, I think we had a soft opening in, like, late 2016 and then kind of announced ourselves to the world around uh, the middle of last year, so it's still pretty new.
0: Yeah, great. Um, okay, so we'll dive more into that a little bit. So just a refresher, because um, I've introduced you, but now I just want to uh, reiterate sort of the podcast um, is about authenticity, so I like to always kind of bring it back to that. And um, one of the first segments I have is re- very basic, and it's one of the things. So the two reasons, I, s- I said that I, I think you're an authentic person for for two reasons, or a good person for this podcast for two reasons. One is um, I, I think you as a real human <laughs> are um, – real human as if i have to differentiate that from other i guess i do i guess i do that's why this podcast exists um but you are a a genuine person you when i have a conversation with you i've never gotten the impression that you're lying or being secretive or manipulative or anything like that uh you know unless you're acting as a character in a play (laughs) um but but no i mean you as a real person have never been like that and um and then the other reason i thought was fascinating is this sort of split with something like vr and and ar um in like trying to create an authentic experience, but in a virtual space, it's sort of that hybrid was what jumped out to me. And I was like, I kind of want to talk to Alex about that. Um, So before, I'm still really want to get into that. But the one last thing I want to do, part of this really talking about being authentic is, I feel like um, one of the things that authentic people do, and this is is sort of my way of testing every interview guest that I have on. This is my, my way of saying, are you an authentic human? Is I think, uh, real people ha- are, are hypocrites to hypocrisy like the recapture for authenticity meant to be easy on humans hard on hipster bots an example I gave uh, our friend Dan when I was talking to him uh, recently was like I absolutely love coffee shops but I, I really don't drink coffee at all <laughs> um, so like these well, and, th- there's like and silly one quirky I'd... you know, conflicts yeah go ahead I'm sorry
1: Another one I'd, I'd pin on you as well that dates back to when I first met you was being like, oh, "Okay, Danton, he's like a like a football player kind of guy," and then realizing <laughs> that you also shared like a love of theater and much more geeky artsy things. That's right, another right. <laughs> contradiction that you don't see in in a ton of people.
0: Yes, in fact, so much so that there was a girl I met in high school. Um, like first day, we were in the same class together, and she had Harry Potter stickers on her calculator and I, had, I, I just give off this big football player vibe I guess so like I leaned over to her and I think she was just ready for me to be like what is that are you a fan of Harry <laughs> Potter and like make fun of her or something and instead I'm like oh that's awesome it's Harry Potter I love Harry Potter I, I started a Harry Potter club in 8th grade and I was the only 8th grader and it was a bunch of 6th graders and like I'm such a dork so I think she appreciated that but yeah it's interesting you uh, you pointed that out I guess I've given you my examples do you have you don't have to give 10 examples but do you have one or two things that jumps in, in your head as like a, a little bit of self-awareness? I think this is helpful for, and also just understanding that we're all a little conflicted, and it's okay to be conflicted as a human.
1: Yeah, I I mean, uh, maybe conflicted isn't quite the word I'd use, but I did feel, you know, thinking back to middle school and high school, that I didn't really have a a clear clique or, like, a clear crowd where I was like, these are my people, because I did, like you know, things that were related to theater and art class. And I had some friends that were more, you know, into like D&D. And you'd be surprised even with the things I just mentioned that at least in my high school, those weren't all the same groups of people. (laughs) Um, And then, yeah, I I was doing sports as well. Not at the level that you were, Danton. But yeah, I did soccer and tennis and basketball and all that. And uh, I just found that it was difficult for me to find anyone else that had the wide variety of of interests that I did, especially in that I think I, I figured out from a pretty young age that I Uh, I kind of aspired to be a generalist. I I never had the kind of personality that wanted to go all in on one thing and become the best in the world at playing piano or something like that. But I I had a very strong interest in learning enough about a very wide variety of of skills and, and creative pursuits uh that i I just felt like it was one of those like knowledge is power kind of things where i wanted to know a little bit about everything and a lot of the people who i knew there were you know wide areas of of the world that they just had no interest in at all and i I thought that made me feel kind of weird and and a bit like an outsider
0: right yeah i think i think that's understandable um i uh yeah I, i feel like you're right maybe conflict is not the right word but just having like having multiple interests that may vary from what this sort of stereotype has been and and also being someone who's um uh, a jack of all trades master at none is the expression which I hate that expression and I literally (laughs) you know back in high school I had a situation where um I had an opportunity to be a background in the movie Annapolis which didn't turn Mm. out to be a great movie so maybe this isn't the best example but nonetheless um it was a really cool opportunity for someone in high school you know a kid who loves acting and loved movies and so I wanted to do it so badly um, that I had to decide The football coach made me decide Rather than allowing me to do that And like miss a couple practices He's like it's either this or that And so I was like well I guess I'm going to do that instead And I don't think he expected that answer and, and I remember him like Very snarkily saying to me after that Like you know Jack of all trades Master at none And I was like You're a high <laughs> school teacher slash, slash coach And that's what you're saying to people Like no you can only be one thing ever And you know And in the reality Especially now that I'm older I've realized that like not only do do people have multiple interests just like you know tons and tons of interests but they're also their life changes throughout like their whole opinions change and and their careers and trajectory change I mean you started out thinking maybe you'd be a licensed architect I'm sure like right out of school you didn't get the license and it took you a completely different path that I think has has been very successful from what I've uh, seen and I think that That's completely okay, and that's great, and I think that should be embraced more. And I think it is. I think it's finally at a point where it seems to be more embraced, Um, and I'm I'm just fascinated by that. So I guess at this point we can just kind of dive into like the bigger topics. You you've passed the test. You're officially a a real (laughs) human. Um, It's I I I call it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) Go ahead. You you go
1: first. I was gonna say two quick follow-ups on the stuff uh, you just mentioned. um, One of which is that. It's and this might, might be something we'll, we'd get in more to anyway, but I, I just wanted to bring it up because it's fresh in my head, that I, I think one of the primary things that any teacher or any educator for children should be doing is exposing them to as many different disciplines and skills and aspects of life as possible, because that's the opportunity where kids can find out what they really like and what they really want to pursue. And any teacher that you know ever says, like, you should only be focused on one thing, I think they're doing that child a disservice. Um, but similarly, too, I mean, something I think I've, I've learned over the years, and, and you as well, Anton, is that even if you are, quote unquote, a jack of all trades, that can bring enormous benefits with it. Because if you are in the top 10% in the world in one particular area and then the top 10% in the world in another particular area and you're able to combine those skills in a really unique way. That puts you in a, in a very specialized position to, to solve problems in a way that No one else could, especially if you were only the top 0.1% in one of those fields and then, you know, not particularly skilled in any of the other ones. So, you know, the way that I've been lucky enough to bring together these different areas of theater and architecture and new technology, um, I think that's been I can attribute that to the freedom I've had over over my life (laughs) to explore
0: different areas of interest and see where it takes me right and I encourage everybody to do that just try as many things as you want and and you don't have to be successful by the you know whatever definition you know people want to put on that but you, you don't have to be even that you just just to explore it and try it out I mean when I go back and think about high school I I, I, I definitely know people who maybe they did one club you know or one one activity or one sport and that was it and and, again, if that's what they wanted to do, that that's fine. But it just seemed like they never even were exposed to all the other things. And I can't help but think that, like, in the same year – I I applied to like half engineering schools, half architecture schools. I and that's for the application process. Going back even further, like I was doing CPA programs. I did a history conference. I did some law law stuff. Like there's a whole mix of things that you're trying. Especially at that age, I feel like you should be trying it, uh, even more. So, but I think it's okay later on to keep dabbling in the things that you really uh, you really love like that. And I think I think that is how you get an authentic person to go to bring it back full circle. That's how, that's how it feels like it's, um, it's a more real life. Um, at least from, from my perspective, I feel like I'm enjoying things more when I'm more honest with myself and self-awareness is another thing that's really important. I think that that, that ties to, do you, so sort of bringing it back around, how, how do you sell, what you have as being authentic, an authentic experience, and um, you can interpret that however you want. How, how do you how do you market something that is inauthentic? And I think that's that's a hard thing for some people to wrap their brains around. Is that tran- that difference between reality and virtual or augmented reality? So you're specifically asking, how do I sell a, a VR experience? Um, Maybe not that. I guess it's the wrong way. I don't really care how much how, how you sell it necessarily. Uh, well, not that I don't care, but <laughs> I don't want to be completely insensitive. But uh, I I want to know more, I guess. How how do you frame that or, or do you frame what you do as being authentic? Like, are you are you trying to create a real world a duplicate? Are you trying to create something that's completely different in its own realm, or is it somewhere in the middle? Um, or you know, do you care about it feeling real versus being real? I guess is sort of what the question is. Right, but you're talking about the virtual virtual reality experiences. Exactly. Yeah. Gotcha.
1: Yeah, uh, that's a that's a good question for a couple reasons. One of which is uh, it depends on the project. In some cases, if we're doing a pretty straight up arc kind of thing especially for real estate you do want it to seem as authentic and real as possible you're trying to say hey yeah we want people to be able to come into a leasing office and put on a vr headset and look at a building that won't be constructed for four years and have that experience be authentic enough to the real thing that will be built that they're gonna you know sign a lease and feel like they're they know what they're signing up for Um, but then there's the much more nebulous end of the spectrum that's like well some of the virtual reality experiences we're making are for pieces of architecture that are very early in development and some things are sketched out and we're trying to capture the the gesture or the idea of of a project without uh, prescribing yeah materials or lighting or anything that might come down the line in the same way that a napkin sketch for architectures can be very evocative of what it might become you can do something similar in vr but also have those elements of scale and and the human experience Um, but then there's also things that are very interesting to me right now that we're only beginning to explore like creating virtual architecture that is never going to be built and never has any intention of being built but is still supposed to create an authentic experience, at least in the sense that you want people to have real human connection there. And just like in the real world, how does architecture start to enable the potential for that real human connection? Right. Um, I'll use theater as an example, because that's something <laughs> I'm doing a lot of in the real world and in the virtual world, um, you know, to see, A theater show in virtual reality a live show with with actors on a virtual stage where you're just putting on a headset and people from all over the world are joining you we did this with an improv comedy show uh, last Saturday Um, there's an opportunity there for for example like making everyone have the best seat in the house you can give everyone the front row center seat but then that's at the cost of feeling like you're there with all the other people because if everyone feels like they're in the front row you have to turn off all the other avatars (laughs) so You know, do you do that or do you do do something that's more like immersive theater, like Sleep No More, which you and I went to together. And in that case, you're kind of a ghost in the machine, kind of walking through the whole experience and, and not affecting it, but still having a little bit more freedom in how close you get to it. Or do you do something that's more of a standard proscenium theater where you just have people seated in seats? But then if you have a really big theater with a lot of people, there's going to be people sitting in the you know 30th row saying, like, I'm in virtual reality. Why do I have to look at the actors being 250 <laughs> feet away? Yeah. So, you know, and on a bigger scale with architecture, too, like there's things about the real world that architecture solves, like uh walls and roofs to keep out the elements and and various things related to gravity existing that don't need to be the case in virtual reality so you know why have walls or roofs in virtual reality architecture Uh, is it just a delineator of space because you don't need it for uh, structural purposes or anything like that so these are questions that are still in the very early stages of being explored but i think it's interesting to try to think about how do you create an authentic piece of virtual architecture that is going to serve the function of what it needs to serve but it doesn't need to look anything like the the real world version of that piece of architecture right yeah when we had a
0: conversation about that sort of particular thing and i also saw your your presentation um when you were at venice and you mentioned Mm -hmm. like ready player one sort of level where where you're just you're so immersed and it it starts to break the rules like that dance scene where where you know normal physics and laws of nature (laughs) and gravity don't really apply and it gets really fascinating you know the 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 really basic analogy that I try to give people um, is if you really think about like basic basic materials for architecture, right, because we come from that background, so we might as well start there. If you think about basic materials, you know, they, they started with things as basic as uh, uh, bricks and clay and thing, um, tr- wood and leaves, and, and everything was sort of based on the scale of the materials and accessible in that way. And it kept accelerating, and you get to the point where you have concrete, and concrete sort of starts to break rules where it can be – a lot of different things right and so it had a lot more flexibility but it was still very heavy and so there were limits that sort of were reached and this keeps getting tested over and over and over again and you keep ha- being having this new material um, introduced and I, so- I sort of feel like we're at that point with VR where like it we're introducing something where we, we need to realize that with the new material we can start breaking the the rules of the old materials you know we have that ability now and I I always felt frustrated by digital fabrication, for example, even now today is, is often made to make like a 3D printed object that looks like concrete or marble or some other material. Yet we have this amazing thing that could do so many more complicated things than look like a, an existing material that already has sort of the, the physical constraints. And I feel that way with a lot of the VR that I see. I, I see stuff where it's like. Okay, I, I get the architecture part. I see the benefit to it. But, yeah, I'm at the point where I want to dive in deeper. I want to get into a world that's so, like, outside of the way we even think about, you know, space and time and all that kind of stuff. And just, just like, like, get in a room maybe with some, like, physicists and just say, like, what what's, like, the craziest room? Like, what, what's, a, what's a world that you would want to see? You know, maybe there is a world, an exoplanet that's been explored, and you can use that as a base model. I don't know. But I just I want to go down that road, go into that rabbit hole, whatever, whatever – um, you know whatever I just want to learn more about that how how do you feel about that aspect
1: yeah well I mean what's fascinating to me is there's a lot of great books on architectural phenomenology the, the experience of being inside a space and all the sensational qualities to it that are written for architecture some of which are very old you can look at You know anything from Le Corbusier's Towards New Architecture to uh, there's a great old Japanese book called uh, In Praise of Shadows Christopher Alexander has a book called A Pattern Language and all of these books are driving towards you know what's the best (laughs) experience of being in a space Uh, Poetics of Space is another great one Gaston Bachelard I think and all of those things what's being described in those about you know compression and release and dark spaces versus light spaces and how it feels to experience architecture there there are core principles there that i think apply just as much to virtual reality spaces as they do to real ones the difference being that in virtual reality you're not as limited as much and, and the material question is a really good one because you know there's the whole like louis Kahn thing about uh let the brick be a brick and you know i asked the brick what it wants to be and it says i, I like an arch <laughs> and when you have digital materials you know it, because they can be anything and this i'm talking both about digital fabrication as well as entirely virtual materials, it's tough to ask those questions of like, what does it want to be? Uh, Because you can have a piece of 3D geometry in virtual reality and with the click of a button have it cycle between brick and concrete and wood and those all have different um, I want to say associations that people have with them but it's kind of interesting because they're I guess they're primarily nostalgic. You know, people see something in virtual reality that looks like brick, and they're thinking about real-world encounters they've had with brick. Um, and if you put someone into a virtual reality piece of architecture who had never seen brick before, they might actually be kind of puzzled by that because they'd be like, "Well, what's this? You know, what's the mortar for? Like, what? <laughs> why would you build something like this in VR?" And right. It's it's just all these weird kind of familiar um, reference points that that are being used to help people associate. Things that are virtual with the real-world counterparts.
0: Yeah, well, like I can't help but think I always see these sort of uh, things that pop up on probably Buzzfeed or some similar website where it'll be like, you know, there are people growing up right now that don't know what the picture of the floppy disk is on the save button, you know, or or people that don't know when you say roll the window down, they don't understand that there physically was a mechanism for rolling it down. And it, and when I when I hear this, I'm like, oh yeah, that's funny, haha. But then I'm like. How many just, like, pretty much every word probably you could go back and trace to something that we, we have just completely lost touch with or the meaning is so distant from its original meaning and things evolve so much that it's like you just you lose touch with, with what happened there. And, um, yeah, it, it is a fascinating thing to try to understand, like, that when people – if people were born into a, uh, into a VR environment – you know, if that was the only thing they were ever exposed to, what's what's the story? There's the uh, yeah, Mary and the color red or whatever, <laughs> right? And, the, and and it's um, there's also what I'm thinking back even more uh, further to maybe a, it's like a myth or something about the guy who only sees his shadows oh, and he never uh, sees that- like real people. Is that Plato's Cave or is that something? That good? might be. Yeah, you I think we're on the right tracks. Someone yeah. listening look it up because I am I'm, I'm <laughs> probably wrong. We're probably wrong. But either way, something like that where it's about this idea that if you only saw the world in shadows, you know, from the aspect of a cave or some other, you know, enclosed environment, um how would you interpret things? And yeah, oh man, I I just I can't help but be fascinated by like just the endless amount of of possibilities here. Um for you to just grew up in a VR world, I don't, I don't, I really don't even know where to begin. I'm just, I'm drawing a blank for like what that would be because we have so many frames of reference. It's almost like, like trying to ask a blind person to like understand what it would be like to see for the first time without them actually experiencing it. I mean, they can't, they can't really understand that without having seen it.
1: Yeah, and and even though I, I certainly would never lock my child in a virtual reality headset, um, <laughs> it has been very interesting watching uh, Alistair who's three now, grow up with that. As a tool for him, like, you know, I remember being his age and drawing with crayons on paper, and he of course still does that, but he also is drawing in Tilt Brush with no gravity and creating these really cool, you know, freestyle art pieces that I can't, I can't wrap my head around what it would have felt like for me to do that at his age, because it's such a new paradigm, and it's gonna be really fascinating to uh, for lack of a better term compare notes when he's older right. or you know My childhood versus his childhood and start to draw the lines of what kind of things have uh, Affected the way he sees the world versus me and I, I'm just talking about him But of course we also have our our one-year-old on stachios who certainly will grow up with all this stuff as well
0: Right not to leave him out and this is I think that's a perfect uh, segue to um, What you're working on right now? Do you want to talk about what you're I think it applies completely to what you, what you just mentioned?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how many times you and I have uh, ended up spontaneously creating similar things at the same time, (laughs) sometimes intentionally, like our theater group. But um, I I just started a a podcast with a friend, Logan Smith, who runs a company called Bevel Space, kind of the agile lens of the West Coast. We're we're frenemies and we both have kids uh, that we do show virtual reality and augmented reality experiences to. So we created this podcast slash vlog called XR Dad. And it's basically about us trying to show the world uh, some of the beneficial uses that we have found in showing our children these new technologies. It's, it's a little bit of a taboo topic that not a lot of people are talking about right now because there haven't been the research studies for, you know, how does this affect a developing brain? If you're showing this stuff to a kid, does it is it going to make them go blind in five years? Like these things aren't certainties. Um, you know, I, to me, even if it, even I'll, I'll say this, I'll put this on the record, <laughs> even if Alistair ends up needing glasses, and he otherwise would not have needed glasses, um, and that's the price he pays for experiencing a little bit of virtual reality here and there as a kid. I think it's a worthy trade-off. I think the <laughs> fact that he's gotten to see really incredible things at scale and animated and alive inside a virtual environment, and it's just given given him this visceral understanding of everything from animals to certain concepts in, in STEM topics. Uh, it's really exciting, and and I. Th- think that it shouldn't be as taboo as it is so anyway that's what logan and i are trying to accomplish with our our vlog slash podcast we just released the first um audio episode which we actually recorded with our our magic leap devices doing avatar chat which was weird because that could track like our eye movements and things like that (laughs) uh so that was a very fascinating skypey kind of conversation but then we've also done a few video blogs to each other so that's on the youtube channel as well so for anyone who's interested in any of that kind of stuff i I definitely recommend yeah so what's the address it's xr-dad.com. Um we also have a, a, a Facebook. <laughs> I almost said Twitter. Like we, <laughs> we talk about this stuff on Twitter, but we don't actually have a Twitter page for it. Um, yeah. And we're also looking for guests as well. And, and just to be clear, we're not chauvinists. It's, it's just XR dad cause we're XR dads, but we're trying to interview, um, people of all stripes who, you know, have some relationship with kids. Our first interviews were actually with, uh, Amber Bartosh and Kathleen Brandt and Brian Lonsway, all people who Danton and I interacted
0: with at Syracuse university. Right. And, uh, that was a
1: lot of fun. So yeah, check it out. Awesome. XR dad. Yes.
0: Check it out. And I also, I, I do want to dive into this a little bit, Um, because it is taboo and I know this is just starting but I'm really curious what kind of feedback you end up getting I want to follow up with you later about this and and see sort of the pros and the cons you know some people I feel like sometimes the the most vocal people are the ones that aren't fans of things that you're doing Um, so you might get some of that but um, I'm curious you know positive and negative how that pans out and also you know I do want to dive into it a little bit because I um, I'm one of those people that's like I'm always I've always been in touch with tech. I I'm very aware of it. I, I assembled my computer. I like to say assembled, not built because I didn't actually like yeah. solder the wires or anything, but I I got the kit and I put it together. So I'm not, I'll take that much credit for it. But uh yeah. you know, I I like I like being the person that, that does that kind of stuff. I I've, I've done I've always been the person that like took <laughs> took apart RC cars and tried to put them together. So and then as far as all the new technology, I'm always very aware of it, but I'm also at kind of at a distance. Like I de- I never want to be so immersed that I can't like be in the woods for three days without like, without a device, you know, without feeling yeah. like I need to connect to something. So I, I feel that that distance is necessary. And I, you know, I know your wife, uh, almost as long as I've known you pretty much. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I know that she is someone that's very in tune with nature and, and, uh, and not necessarily like she's skilled at VR obviously and, and skilled at at what you're, you, you know, working in, in, um, in tech, I guess I would say. Um, but also a person that's like very in tune with nature and being able to like sort of step away. So I think you guys would probably be an interesting study. Um, but to, to I'll, make, I'll
1: bring up one thing in, in regards to that really, sure. quick, which is just that our overarching goal with all these technologies is to enhance what someone can ultimately do when they don't have the technology, we never want to think of technology as a crutch that someone's relying on, and they can only do the things they like with the technology. Right. But if you as a dumb example, you know, can teach someone how to sail a boat in VR and then they actually go out and sail a real boat. And that's something that they would have been too afraid to learn how to do um, on their own with a boat and might have been more expensive and that kind of thing too. If you can start to have those real world skills trained in a safe environment that allow you those video game mechanics of like, Oh, no, I broke it. Let me try again. And it's very, right. very safe. And uh, I, I think that's what our goal is overall. And that's what we agree on. And that's why we we don't fight too much about technology or or <laughs> as much as I, I would have thought that we might have considering that she is such an
0: outdoorsy, you know, farm girl type of person, <laughs> right. And, uh, yeah, I think, you know, the fascinating overlap is where I'm I find the the most enjoyment out of this technology in particular, like, just for an example, I, I'm a kind of person that uh, I'm constantly going back and forth with my writing projects. I'm just using this as a basic example, some of the stu- stuff I write. And I'm going back and forth between doing everything by hand and doing it on the computer. And I actually find this editing process where when I switch between the two. I, I pick up things that I wouldn't pick up otherwise in the other medium and so I constantly go back and forth i I've, I've learned now after doing this long enough that my best method is to when I when I reach a stopping point I'm like I've been on the computer for too long I need to write I need to print it out I need to mark it up I need to just do something different and if it's the other way around I'm just like I got no I have no more ideas let's just put it in the computer see what happens and, and I'll expand upon it. and it works every single time and I feel like I saw some things with magic leap and I'm like, oh this is so cool you know blending reality with the VR where like oh I could flesh out an idea really he- quick here and then like it's in a physical sort of space like or you have a a digital organization system that's like right next to you in your augmented reality so it's helping you but it's now that now that it can be applied to a physical space it might sort of add some more tactility back in and like for me, I'm just the kind of person that sometimes you need to see things on a board. Like one of the reasons that the sheets work so well when I handwrite is sometimes I need to see like sheet 10 and sheet one next to each other in a certain way, you know, where I just pick up something differently, or I'm moving it in a a certain way. And, and even if it's virtual, if you now can start doing that with these certain uh, programs, I think that's uh, tremendous. I, I I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Absolutely. Yeah. And
1: and to go back to your thing about you still want to be able to go into the woods. It is funny when you start to blend those things. I I got some notoriety when Magic Leap first came out because they said for indoor use only but one of the first things i did was take the magic leap into the woods and you know draw on the leaves and, and play right. some of these games where there's like t-rexes running around the logs on the ground and people got a big kick out of that even though some magic leap employees i know were like oh god if it starts raining it's gonna break <laughs> but yeah it's, it's an interesting question because you can't really do that with virtual reality in virtual reality you're entirely in this other world and there's no reason to go outside with that unless you're out of architecture project site and, and that kind of thing but the augmented reality side is fascinating, and a lot of people point to Pokemon Go, which by the way, did not start as augmented reality because it didn't actually interact with the real world, <laughs> but now it they have a version which can do that. So now it is augmented reality. But anything like that where technology is actually getting people to go out into the
0: real world more, uh, it's you know probably better <laughs> right i want I do want to jump back on one thing about the parenting aspect in a minute. Um yeah. but there was another thing that you just made me think of it, you're a very good experimenter i think that's that's <laughs> something i i've me- mentioned before um you know you're not a, you're not afraid to publish unfinished things um and you're you're good at like working through ideas everything's fair game i think and um the one of the f- the funniest <laughs> uh, videos i saw you working on similar to the one where you were just saying with the magic leap out in the woods it was something that you were tied you tied a device onto the uh, fan can you explain yeah, that yeah. for a second yeah and that's a great so i've been very lucky this year in
1: particular i've had a lot of uh hardware companies sending me early hardware to test out. And it is nice to feel like I've, I've gained a bit of a reputation for, uh, let's say, stress testing, for lack of a better term. <laughs> or the the CEO of Magic Leap, uh, whenever he was reposting my stuff, he'd use the hashtag, alpha experimental. <laughs> like, do not attempt, probably. Um, but yeah, so the, the ceiling fan one was kind of funny. So the Vive Tracker is this little device that came out for the HTC Vive, where it's basically just a little puck about the size of a hockey puck that is tracking Um, rotation and its position in space as long as you're inside a, a vr tracked environment and then you can basically attach anything to that and then if you have a 3d model of the thing you're attaching to it you can touch the real world object and then uh, move it around in virtual space. A, a practical example of how we used this was in designing a real theater. We might attach uh, a Vive Tracker to a theater seat that we actually have a 3D model of. So you have the VR goggles on and you can see the 3D model of that theater seat. But then if you pick up and move the theater seat because it has the Vive Tracker on it, it will also change in virtual reality. So it was this very tactile way to change some of the locations of the seats. But that's not where I started. The first thing I did with the vibe tracker was like, Oh, what if we tie this to a ceiling fan and have it spin around like attached to string and then we're thinking like what kind of video game could this be? And so I I made a a three D hot air balloon model that would go wherever the the ceiling fan puck was going and then I just very quickly programmed it to like shoot lasers or or fireballs at you and then you just have like a flaming arrow and you try to bring down this uh, hot air balloon that's attacking you and then basically once you hit it enough times and you bring down its life. Uh, it detaches from being associated with uh, the puck flying around the fan and just kind of collapses in a giant explosion, not unlike Liquid Snake after
0: the Hindy fight in Metal Gear Solid. (laughs) Of course. It it took us uh, 35 minutes to get to a Metal Gear Solid reference. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I love love Metal Gear Solid. Um, That was like one of the first things we bonded over was the fact that we both – were nerdy enough that we recorded our gameplay way back before twitch existed as a network Uh, and we both have vhs tapes yes vhs tapes of uh playing metal gear solid the first the first one right i would assume Mm -hmm. Um, i did it also with the second one but yeah we both did it yes yep and uh and like playing and it was actually kind of fascinating to watch and be like oh oh i did that but no i missed this thing here oh you you got that guy you know and then always hearing the oh what was that noise <laughs> oh, what was that noise? Oh, just a box <laughs> just a box uh, <laughs> I, just, I love all the little like quirky sound effects um whose footprints are these <laughs> and they always repeat it in like a, a certain cadence oh it's beautiful yeah, um, my,
1: my favorite thing about that too was they established at the beginning of the game like all of these soldiers are geniuses with iqs over
0: 180 <laughs> <laughs> and then they're just complete idiots the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh great great uh okay so back to the thing i, re- I wanted to talk to a, f- a minute ago got a little uh sidetrack but good stuff um but uh just an example with the parenting one of the things that jumps out to me right now um i'm gonna go sort of the the negative route for a second just to kind of see how yeah. you react to this but Devil's uh advocate <laughs> um is one of the things i'm hearing about more and more um is people who work in the tech industry let's say silicon valley um probably more in social networking for the most part but but a lot of different industries let's say and more and more of these types of people coming out and uh, sort of publishing what their restrictions on use are for their children um, in terms of like access to this sort of stuff and do you feel like it's it's important to sort of set up those boundaries I mean based on what we were talking about earlier you seem like you're more open to experiments but are there boundaries behind it that you're not really talking about
1: yeah, that's a really good question. And, and just to give people a couple examples of what you just mentioned, I think Steve Jobs, when the iPad came out, they're like, oh, how many iPads are your kids going to have? And he's like, zero. Like, I'm not going to give my kids those at all. Right. And Bill Gates, I think, famously only had one computer in his house, whereas everyone assumed like all of his children would get their own computer. <laughs> so, yeah, things like that are kind of interesting. Um, we probably should make a little bit more of a, a code to the thing. But I guess so far it hasn't been a problem because we're not showing our kids VR every day or anything like that it's usually a special occasion we usually say a special treat and we're very clear about the rules about special treats and you have them for a certain amount of time and when they're over you say thank you and you don't throw a tantrum right. and that's gone pretty well so you know a typical VR experience we're showing might last anywhere between 5 and 10 minutes and yeah uh, we 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 haven't gotten to the point yet where it feels like something we need to limit and part of that is that it does require assistance it's not like a TV where there is the potential to just put on 30 hours of Teletubbies and leave your kid there and you're kind of stranding them to have their brain melt um, whenever there's anything we're showing with VR, (laughs) A, because the equipment is expensive and B, because uh, it requires a little bit of just explaining like press this button and do this and oh, did the headset get off? Let me tighten it for you again. It's a very actively engaged um, experience. Uh, But just also to keep speaking about technology. So there's a couple apps like on my Kindle Fire that I let Alistair use. And one of them is for, you know, learning how to read. And even that, which is a very, uh, you could say healthy kind of thing. We do try to keep that to under half an hour. And so a a big parenting piece of advice I'd give to most people, and this goes beyond just technology, is to try to make deals with your children like whenever they're going to do something that you know they really like establish at the beginning either how long it's going to be for or what the the cue is in the experience that it's over so for this reading (laughs) game um you are you're building these uh you're you're learning to read and then as you're reading you're building these pieces of equipment that end up in your garage. So you build a bike and a skateboard and that kind of stuff. So usually we'll say you can build two pieces of equipment and that usually lasts about like 20 minutes and then it's over and like they already agreed to the deal and then it's like, okay. Versus I think a lot of the times when I see kids having tantrums, it's because they're having a lot of fun with something and their parents are like, okay, over now. And they're like, what, what? I'm having so much fun. Right, Um, no warnings or anything like that, yeah. I agree, actually,
0: we we have a similar sort of setup and the, the big thing my wife always says is just like being intentional about yeah. what you're doing, first of all, regardless of whether it's, it's an experience like this or watching a movie or reading a book or going outside and playing. It's always about being intentional and saying, like, this is what you're about to do and having some frame of reference, whether it's a, a hard, like, 40 minutes, like you said, or, or like a, a set amount of time, whatever, um, or if it's something like this is the end game, or you can build two of these things, or you can do this twice, or we can go down the slide twice. And I think it's super uh, important to have that because I think that was one of the big differences between, like you said, a lot of the people I knew from my childhood, I remember just constant frustration from my perspective. And I don't know if it was a parental thing where there was just miscommunication or if I wasn't listening because I was too too distracted or you're so young, you're not picking up on it. But I feel like so far with our son, um, who is my older uh, child, (laughs) um, he, he, he definitely takes it in completely like if I say you know we're doing one story for bed or we're doing two tonight because it's it's the holiday and we're gonna we're gonna we have a late night you know we can can do two it's gonna be a special thing like you said you know making it more important more meaningful I think it's important and it's nice to hear that you're you're doing that you're trying to balance that with what you're doing even though it is endlessly fascinating and I, I feel like it could be very easy to get sucked into it.
1: Yeah. And I think if if there's rules established like that, whether they're general rules that are always the case in the household or for a particular activity, then when the activity is over or if whatever, something goes wrong and the activity needs to stop, it doesn't feel as personal. Like I, I can speak from my childhood. Sometimes when I was told I needed to stop doing something, it almost felt like my parents wanted to be mean to me. Like they right. were actively <laughs> trying to, yeah. you know, stop me from having you fun, can't which do that. almost was never the case. <laughs> but if it's if it's just like, well, these are the rules, then it's like you can kind of both be sad together. It's like, yeah, geez, I, I wish we could keep doing this, but the rules are we just do this twice and then it's done. And uh, if it can, if the if the rules and the thing that everyone's upset about feels a little bit more <laughs> impersonal, I think that helps a lot.
0: Yeah. I wonder if we'll be having this conversation the same way in like two or three years or we'll see if it's in some ways, I think things will get easier, but yeah, there's going to be some conflicts. I'm sure that we can't anticipate some, some parents of older kids. will probably, they're probably laughing at this conversation right now and be like, so oh, yeah. naive, so naive. Yeah.
1: <laughs> How old are the kids? Three. Okay. Just wait. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, I think this is a, this is great. I think it's a great thing to dive into, um, the parenting aspect of this because you're right. There's not a lot of people talking about that right now. Um, so I think we've sort of gotten through like a core set of things here. Before I get to some, some items I have at the end, I was wondering if you had anything specific you wanted to talk about, you know, do you wanna go back and mention um, anything about the uh, the VR theater experience that you did? You wanna like explain that more? And, um, and also I really wanna, <laughs> b- just one more thing before you dive into that, I wanna go back to something you mentioned, which is Sleep No More, which if you have not seen this or heard this or read anything, look it up it is by far the, one of the most interesting I don't even know if I can call it a theater experience but let, let's just put it there it, it's one of it's it's like almost like being in a video game I, I don't I don't know how to <laughs> describe it I don't want to oversell it though and I don't want to over explain it I think that's part of the mystery is just sort of you you're effectively an audience member in a, an experience in real space in a real physical space and you get to experience this from a very like anonymous sort of in the background way, but also right in the mix, like right in the middle of everything. And it is it is endlessly fascinating. One of our other friends that went with Alex and, and I, who, um, I don't know, maybe hopefully will be a guest in the future, uh, Fritz uh, Ward, who's a, a poet, um, and he, he actually brought this to my attention, and um, he went with us, and he, I think it was his third time, and just also fell in love with it and found new things. It's just one of those experiences. So I encourage everybody to check it out. Um, so back to what you're saying it's you-
1: a, a, well, real quick on that so just so everyone knows the, that the term for these kinds of shows now is immersive theater and there's quite a few of them now sleep no more was definitely one of the early ones and it does have a lot of incredible replay value because it has that sort of choose your own adventure quality where you can follow the character you're most interested in and so I, I'd probably be talking about this in a minute anyway but uh, what's exciting about thinking about the virtual reality version of that is if we want to if Danton and I want to keep go, going to see sleep no more we both need to you know, go to New York City and have babysitters for our kids and be there for that whole three-hour experience. But in virtual reality, I mean, for something like a Sleep No More, that could be a single-player game even where you can just keep going, going through it again and again and saying, okay, this time I'm going to follow character A, this time I'm going to follow character C, and start to piece together everything that's happening inside that really well-realized world. And nothing like that really exists yet, so
0: I'm excited for where that goes. Well, and then, yeah, that, so we could just dive right back into what you're yeah. working on. So what's the name of, of the show that you just did uh, last week? Yeah, so that was called uh,
1: the The... So I, I'll start by saying this is a collaboration between myself, Agile Lens, and uh, Kira Benzing and David Goshfeld, both of whom have done really cool things in VR in the past. Um, Kira's won a couple awards for her film work, including 360 film, and David got a lot of press for creating um, To Be With Hamlet. It's like a Hamlet VR experience where they took one of the scenes from Hamlet, did some beautiful set design in Unreal Engine where it's you know right there on the castle, and they were playing with the scale affordances of VR by having the two actors, Hamlet and the ghost of Hamlet's father both acting in real time live but the ghost of hamlet's father is you know this giant larger than life specter that <laughs> if you're watching it in virtual reality it adds an extra uh level of power to the whole thing all right so one second <clears throat> you're, you're not allowed to cough alex sorry <laughs> so the project we did was called alive in plastic land and this was a partnership with high fidelity which is a virtual world that was started by philip rosedale who also gained fame in the early 2000s for creating second life High Fidelity is kind of the VR uh, sequel to that. So a lot of people spend time inside virtual reality headsets, getting to know each other, playing games, spending time in these virtual worlds. Uh, I should also mention, you can also do it without a VR headset. It runs on most desktop computers and it can even run on newer Android phones. So the idea here was we wanted to put on a live show uh, and we chose improv comedy. And part of that was we did a bunch of studies this past summer for High Fidelity where we tested doing Shakespeare and, you know, TV scenes and improv and drama and all these different categories of performance. And improv worked the best. One of the major reasons being that this is still a very early technology. And so if you put an actor inside a VR headset and you're tracking their hands and you do a performance capture thing, kind of in the style of Andy Serkis as, as Gollum and, and Caesar and all the things he's done over the years, um, and you're translating that to a digital avatar and the characters look a little bit like characters from The Sims or something like that. There, there do tend to be glitches. You'll have a moment when a, a guy tries to reach out his hand in a very specific way and in VR it's suddenly like it twists in a really horrifying manner (laughs) and if you're doing a Shakespeare play and it's a really meaningful monologue or or soliloquy or something it might kind of ruin the moment but an improv an improv actor who's always thinking yes and they can take something weird that happens and then twist it to be a part of the scene and play with it so we thought VR improv had a lot of potential so we got some very talented improv actors in New York City uh coming from you know second stage and the pit and the UCB all these kind of Saturday Night Live breeding grounds and we got them trained up in how to perform in virtual reality. We showed them how to do certain things like making their avatar enormous and changing how their character looks. And then we had a virtual theater that we you know, had a show date and people from all over the world attended the experience. And in this case, we did use kind of a traditional theater just because it was easiest for the amount of time we had to set up. It wasn't a huge theater also, so no one had a bad seat. And everyone could just kind of sit down virtually with a headset on or or on their computer and watch this live improv show happen. Uh, The week before also, I I guess I should mention, we also did a workshop, which was actually these same actors, but letting anyone come up on stage and just teaching them you know, different improv games and techniques of improv. And that was a great success too. So that's been a really fun collaboration with High Fidelity and we're going to South by Southwest in March to do something similar. Uh, we'll be talking on a panel, but then also having a demonstration like this again. Oh, great. And, uh, our, yeah, our goal is to just keep doing more of these kinds of live virtual events uh, scaling up to the point where eventually you won't even need avatars. It'll be volumetric capture where whatever the person is doing in the real world you can also translate that into virtual reality and eventually we'd love to do a fully original production that really takes advantage of the things that we've already talked about that are exciting in virtual reality, not worrying about physics and being able to play with different things you can make the character do, uh, having really lavish special effects that don't cost any money. <laughs> that kind of stuff right. is exciting.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think you know one of the first steps that, that happens is uh, when this kind of technology happens, most people um, feel like, oh well, now I should do a, uh, You know, all these new experiences in VR because VR is a trendy thing right now. And so they, they just sort of had this idea like, oh, I'll just do a play in VR and everyone will wear headsets and it'll be cool. And they don't really think about the logic of like, well, what makes it different in VR? And I think having you, you and your team that you're working with on this who really has that background now where you've been doing this for a little while, both performance and a lot of theater work and VR work, um, it's really going to add to that, I think. Um, ha- what's the feedback been on this this show so far?
1: Oh, people have really liked it. We got uh, some great mentions on Twitter from people from Bavaria, as well as you know some people who we knew locally who <laughs> may have been kind of skeptical about the whole experience and, and jumped in and thought it was really exciting. Uh, but yeah, there were technical glitches too. We had some audio problems where some of the actors dropped out, and so that's still an ongoing challenge but we think it's worth it. It's kind of a pioneering, cutting edge thing. And uh, it's it's exciting to feel like we're kind of on the frontiers of it. There isn't a lot of this happening right now. And I guarantee you in, in 15, 20 years, this will be ubiquitous. This will be the kind of thing kids will be doing in their school plays in elementary school. Um, <laughs> and what's, what's fascinating, mm, what was I going to say about that? Oh, uh, to to your point about how how does this stuff start to come about, I I want people to think about or or actually look at what early films looked like when, when film first became a medium, people always just take what they know from previous mediums of the past. And so early film really just was filming plays because theater was the the best reference point they had for that. And so early on, it was just like, okay, well, let's film people doing plays. And then of course, film started to develop its own language and you had cuts and you started to play with, um, obviously when sound came in, all the different things that could happen with music and and, uh, close-ups and all of that, that whole language developed over time. And so that's starting to happen in virtual reality, but we're not there yet. But right now is the chance for anyone who's interested in helping to form a new medium and set up best practices and some of the cultural touchstones. Uh, it's a good time to jump in.
0: Yeah, that's. I think that's on a similar camp to what we were talking about earlier with like what what laws of nature do you break if you're building VR environments? I think that's one of those things that's just going to be they're going to know what laws to break in 15, 20 years, 50 years when, you know, however long this, this takes to sort of flush out some of these things and develop. And it's going to be constantly changing obviously too. But, um, and I think it's similar with, with the theater experiences and, and I'm sure there are a lot of other avenues to really don't just think about that copy and paste. It's a new medium. Hey, like let's really just experiment. Um, and that's, to tie it back to another thing i said with i think you're a good experiment so i I commend you for that and i think you're a good person to be uh, at the helm for this and um the other thing i think that you you do is uh you you utilize your free time very well (laughs) um you're you're good at using every every moment of free time i feel like and and not um what's the word i'm looking for i don't know if i have a word you're not um precious about that time in a way that like Oh, I need to get, you know, an hour in or, or it's worthless. You know, if you get 10 minutes in on something that's going to eventually take an hour, it's still there's still help that's happening. You you see the usefulness of it. Um, and so I think that's a really good thing as well um, that people could uh, try to to um, model from from you. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And on that note, I mean, it does help to know you have a certain amount of time. Um, 10 minutes, of course, better than no minutes. But uh, sometimes I'm just getting revved up and I'm like, oh, no, I got to go do another thing now. Obviously, much harder with kids if it's like, "Okay, it's, you know, 9 p.m. and I'm going to focus for four hours right now on this one thing. (laughs) And then it's 1030 and your kids are still awake or having trouble sleeping. You know, not ideal. But one thing I think I've taken good advantage of is uh, my commute into New York City. And I'm not going into New York City every day of the week anymore. But um, it's about... Out an hour and 15 minutes on the train each way right. and so I've, I've learned to use that as a very um, portioned out morsel of time and I find that that is a very productive chunk of time because I know exactly how much time I have and I usually am trying to accomplish a specific task and you know anytime you have a deadline it's helpful re- regardless of what kind of project you're working on so even artificial deadlines like if you're just telling yourself by the time I get off this train I will have completed this line of code that's causing me trouble, uh, I find a lot of times your brain can click into another gear where it's a little bit more productive versus what can happen sometimes in an office setting where you're just sitting down and you're like, okay, I'm here for eight hours and the thing I need to get done today, okay, uh, I guess that's gonna take eight hours. When (laughs) it's possible, it might've taken an hour if you felt like that's all the time you had.
0: Right, yes, And I
1: think we saw that at architecture school too, like there were people in architecture school with us who didn't pull all-nighters, and I think part of that In some cases, it was laziness. But for some people, they just were very good about managing their time and saying like, I'm getting eight hours of sleep tonight. Uh, I'm going to be done with this by 10 p.m. And they would figure out a way to do that versus there were some other people who would be like, okay, it's going to be an all-nighter. There's so much work to do. And you would kind of see them stretch out the amount of time it would take to do certain tasks because they'd already resigned themselves to thinking like, well, I'm here all night. And uh, yeah, there's just less focus with that kind of mindset.
0: Yeah, I can't help but think to, um, I, I know one person that pops to my mind, Liz K. I'm not gonna say yes, her last I, name if she doesn't want to be advertised, well. <laughs> but but yeah, she was one person and even even uh, our friend Dan King um yeah. when he was in studio I remember one time when he tried to do an all nighter and it just wasn't in him because he like he got to a point where he's like, I, I can do this later. It's not really worth it. And and I think we all came from that mindset of like work, 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 like you need to be the best, you have to produce the most. And then the nights where I would like I would abandon it for whatever reason. I, I realized, oh, I came in, I did one model. I dedicated my time to it. I made it really good, and I didn't do the the 25 that they wanted for this particular thing or whatever crazy number they were asking. But I did something really good, and then that's the thing that they're like, oh, that's great. <laughs> um, that you know they appreciate that more because I spent the time on it and you um, you put the effort in where it needs to go. And I think learning when to do that it, it takes time in whatever field you're in to understand when you're wasting time versus not. But I like to think that even in those moments where you're wasting time, you're learning about how not to waste time in the future, and you're, you're learning something in the process, which, again, go, comes back to kind of how you work, and I think that's a good thing. Um, I just want to, uh, yeah. you know, normally I think at this point, in the future, I want to have some interview questions from, from uh, listeners. Do you have something to say uh, before, before we get to, the next to
1: that? part? Yeah, I, mean, I think there's a good transition point there. Sure. I think it's worth um, mentioning the origin story of our theater group and, and the way I transition to that is sometimes if you're stuck doing one thing for too long, you can get tunnel vision and it's really hard to separate yourself from the problem you have and approach it and one of the ways i think we've both found that uh it can be great to solve an architecture problem for example is to be working on something else that's still creative but maybe using a different part of your brain and i think that's kind of what the origin story for for our theater troupe uh what was which uh, i guess just to give a quick background of it we could talk about this for hours (laughs) it's exciting because it's still going and they're still there and i get to see them every (laughs) december um i was doing a, a a musical my freshman or my Yeah, freshman year, freshman year, because it was first year players, players. and I was doing Anything Goes, and I was lucky enough to get like a good speaking role that also had uh, singing and all that. So I had to go to a lot of rehearsals, and this wasn't something that would typically happen in architecture school, especially freshman year. Everyone would have their heads to the grindstone and working as hard as they can on just architecture, and uh, I remember I'd be coming back from these rehearsals sometimes at 11 p.m. at night, just about re- starting my my project. And you know, that caused for some late nights, but I felt like I was very energized and invigorated. And I remember yes. some of the times when I'd come back into the warehouse and you, Danton, would be looking at me with this kind of like, oh God, I wish I could still do that. And you were frustrated about how difficult it was in a, as an architecture major to do anything that wasn't architecture. It was kind of designed into our schedule uh-huh. that we couldn't join any other clubs or groups. Um, you know, I know a lot of people, even for like sporting activities, they, they wanted to be parts other teams but the way studio and all of our other classes were set up you couldn't attend uh when those things were happening so uh why don't you mention what what happened when you
0: started to get frustrated (laughs) well then yeah then we decided uh we would just make our own group (laughs) um and and just it took off from there and we well, it took off maybe is the wrong word. We started with like eight people, I think, in the first show, right? Yeah, and they were just in the architecture just school. Just in the architecture school originally, and eventually it branched out. And actually now it's not even based in the architecture school anymore, which is <laughs> in some ways unfortunate. But I still I still like that the group is, is still uh, going strong. Um,
1: it's making a lot of people happy. Yeah, because our original goal was like, let's just have a creative outlet when we're stressed out about architecture and our projects. You know, even if it's 2 a.m. in the morning, we'll go in one of the the classrooms and just rehearse for 20 minutes um, one of our shows. And that was really freeing. And I think for those of us that were enjoying it, it, it really uh, benefited our architecture work because sometimes you take a break from one problem you're trying to solve in your architecture and you go rehearse a scene and then maybe this is a weird example but you might actually be thinking about oh wow you know this scene is structured in a really weird way Um, and you're thinking about the structure of the scene and then you go back and you look at your project and then you're thinking about the structure of the architecture and maybe something clicks in your brain and and you're solving the problem in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise
0: right yeah there's definitely a lot of like transdisciplinary um, breakthroughs that happen and you still constantly hear articles in the news where like There was one I I recently read about some scientific discovery that was discovered because the person was collaborating with someone who was like a dancer. You know, something like you just would not expect to collaborate with a scientist, but they were thinking about things differently. And they were like, oh, if I was to do that step or that move, I would go, boop, boop, you know, and I would do this. And then it would click and I would be able to do this final piece because I had momentum or so. It was something related to that. And then meanwhile, this development happens uh, in the science because someone was listening to that and was like, oh, I think... I've never thought about this aspect of research or this this way of like, um, l- let's say it was CRISPR. I don't think it was. But but uh, like, you know, understanding like how we can edit things in the in the genome like that was discovered through this sort of alternate alternate path. And I think there's a lot of potential there. Um, and and actually, another thing that jumps out when you t- you talked about doing we, we said this all the time. I think both of us it was kind of our mantra was, yeah, doing effectively these crazy, seemingly. Um, Time-consuming and, and very busy uh, things in our life on the side actually made the other things yeah more pro- more productive. You know, if you really if you went back to the hours that we actually worked on things, it probably was less than most people because we were spending so much time on the theater stuff, and yet, you know. So then say, hey, if I get the same grade as someone who worked ten times more. You would, you would say that, that it's, it's much more effective because we are working less on and, and basically achieving the same goal at the end of the day and not that we need to all get the same grades and that that's not my goal in life is to get A's, you know, <laughs> especially not now but um, I think it is important to understand the benefit of that and even now I'm doing um, this this thing where I'm, I'm doing storytelling publicly like sort of the, the moth style, the moth is one of the ones I do, um, there's a bunch in yeah. Philly for, for any Philly listeners um, first person arts uh tell me a story in South Philly area. Uh, And I'm sure there's a bunch more that I I can't think of at the moment, but um, even just this, like writing a story, doing it in front of people. It's like this, like, this high i get this thing out of my my mind i get to tell someone a story and get some feedback from it and then i come home and on the nights where i do those things i come home and i'm like yeah i'll do dishes and i'll do this and that and it's like it's chore work that otherwise i don't want to even get to most days when i come home but here i'm just so invigorated that i'm just like knocking out chores and i'm just i'm wide awake and i have a million more ideas it's just this this seed and it's just uh it spawns more and more and you're just constantly thinking of what you can do next and how things can can change because of this experience that you had, and I think that's really beneficial. Um, so yeah, I think uh, I think we'll wrap up there. I was gonna I was gonna do like another segment um, with interviews, but like I said there's this is a brand new podcast um, so we don't really have the random listener questions yet, and maybe we'll have some um, articles and actually anyone listening, um, there will be a Twitter handle. I'm not sure what it is yet, but I will post it because <laughs> the website's going to launch very soon. Um, but you'll be listening to this after it already launched, obviously. Um, so on there, hello hopefully... Hello from the past. Yes, hello, um, time travelers. Uh, we will have the, the Twitter handle, and you can um, send messages, and then uh, you'll also be able to send messages on the website um, directly. And and if you have feedback on, on um, segments or types of questions you might want to ask, um, let us know. Let me know. Um, and uh and check out alex he's got he said all his stuff you know the xr dads um the show uh Live in plastic land is that that's still accessible people can still get that correct
1: well, they can't see it right now. We're, we have all the video footage uh, of the VR performance recorded from all these different angles, and we're cutting it together right now. Okay. If anyone wants to s- get a sense of what it looked like, I've got a really nice uh, two-and-a-half-minute trailer that I showed at our, our office holiday
0: presentation a few days ago. Okay, and I'm happy to share that. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and just uh, follow Alex because I think you're going to see a lot of interesting things uh, in the future. So... Thank you again. Yeah, the two the
1: two handles for that, or the two places I'm most active are YouTube and I and Twitter. Sorry, YouTube and Twitter um, at iBrews, I B R E W S. Yes, because <laughs> you're very hairy eyebrows, among other things. But yes, <laughs> I, I, not not among other hairy things. I mean, among other reasons. <laughs> sure, sure. The other the other thing that came from was when I was uh, the the. Uh, when I was the shorter version
0: of internet for everything, oh, I started right. to create the all this stuff for the internet. I yeah. was
1: thinking like internet brews, like internet concoctions. <laughs> so yeah,
0: <laughs> yes, very YouTubey sort of name. Um, and that's where you can find the Albuquerque video that I mentioned in the intro. And uh, I think right, or it's it's technically on Slack. No, because I
1: did that. I did that for Slacktory. Yeah, so you got to look at for but, it there.
0: But you could probably uh, you could find a lot of other cool stuff on Alex's website. I'm sure. Um, yeah. And it, it will be linked somewhere. Some of the Slack, Slacktory stuff is there. If you look up Alex, just Google Alex. (laughs) That's another option. Um, You'll pretty much get mostly him and then also the CEO of Pepsi Canada, I think. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's not that one. He's also not the hockey player who's on a minor league team in Canada. Um, So at this point, I think we'll we'll probably wrap it up. Uh, Thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Alex. It was wonderful talking to you again, as always. Can I I make a suggestion for the podcast? Sure, yes. I I think
1: you should try to have every guest uh, provide like one final thought or piece of advice or just something to to leave the listener with as they head off to do their whatever they're going to do after they listen to the podcast yes
0: very neil degrasse tyson um yes Yes. hold on before you do that i do want uh, want you to say one other thing we talked about the donation Uh, this is an opportunity to talk about donations donation directions directions on where and how to donate your donations
1: yeah, there's a, a charity I give to pretty regularly that I really like. They're called No Kid Hungry. And it's just kind of a shame that we live in, a, in as wealthy of a country as America and still one in six children do suffer from food insecurity where they don't actually know where their next meal is coming from. So No Kid Hungry, just a really great way to make a difference. They they make a few dollars go a really long way in helping people. So you can find them at nokidhungry.org.
0: Thank you. Yeah, and I'll post the link um, to that also on uh this this uh podcast. So, all right Alex. Yes, yeah, since I I don't really I haven't come up with like my wise words yet and like with the sort of Neil deGrasse 1 minute summary at the end, you know, where he gets a little deeper and he he says some really deep stuff. Um <laughs> but but yes, I'm so I'll leave it on on the the guest. Sure. I like that idea. Um so is there something you want to leave leave the listeners with about and and, and it doesn't necessarily no, you know what? I'm gonna make you. It has to be about authenticity, uh, yeah, or it has, it has to be, be from a real place at the very least.
1: Yeah. So if if this core question that you're so or another example I'd give is so Kent Bai, who has a, a great podcast called Voices of VR, he ends every podcast asking someone, and what do you believe the ultimate potential of VR and AR is? So it's a nice way to you know really push forward with that that mantra of the podcast of of trying to document um, the state of virtual reality. So. I'd say for this podcast it makes sense to really uh, hammer down like what do you believe uh, really can help someone become their, their most authentic self or something along those lines and the advice I'd give to anyone who's wondering that just summed up is to always be looking for opportunities that have one foot in something you're familiar with and some foot another foot in the totally unknown and I think that served me really well in life that I, I rarely jump headfirst into something I know nothing about but I do do really like feeling like I have no idea if something is gonna succeed or fail. And I spend a lot of time thinking like, well, okay, well what would be the worst case scenario if this fails horribly? And in most cases the answer is not that I die. So in most cases it's been worth it. And in most <laughs> cases it has not failed horribly. In some <laughs> cases it's been great. So yeah, that's kind of my, my my little summary of advice I'd give to people is try new things and don't be afraid of failure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Great. One foot in the familiar, one foot in the unknown. It's very different than the yeah. song lyrics of that one foot song that's out there. Uh, I, I don't know, know what fun. that is. Yes, <laughs> one foot in front of the other one. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> about as far as my singing is going go. Song. <laughs> <laughs> I just made it up. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, <laughs> Alex. Thank you. Uh, great as always. Um, good talking to you. And thank you to all the listeners for tuning in. Um, Thanks, everyone. Yes, Thanks, Danton. This has been the Two Hip Podcast. Too hip, too hip.